But we're so glad that you're with us and you're a part of us today. Last month, Angela and I took a few days off together to Vancouver. Vancouver is one of our favorite cities. We love it. We love the cafes, the shops, strolling along the seaside and the markets and all these different things. And it's, uh, it's one of our, our favorite places to go without the kids. And, um, and we were able to do that uh, last month. And we stayed at a hotel right down in Yale Town, which is really, I always feel like so cool when I'm in Vancouver and I'm in Yale Town. And, uh, and so we're in Yale Town and uh, little cafes and sitting there and you can kind of look down one way, you can see the ocean and you can see the bay and the marina and uh, you can see all the cool shops and all the little cafes. And, and I realized that probably within my peripheral view, I could see about 100 people coming, going, somewhere sitting at cafes, standing at the street corner, waiting for the light to change, walking with friends, going in and out of the SkyTrain station. It's the main hub for the Canada line right there. And all of these people and all their activities, many of them sitting, standing with their friends. And of course, I noticed that they're all on their phones. Like there's 100 people I could see and every person, even those that are sitting at a table with a friend, or standing, or even walking, looking at their phones constantly. And it's interesting, this cultural shift that we have seen happen in our world, where it seems like we are present everywhere else except in the moment we're in right now. Somehow technology has disconnected us from the moment we're in and the people we're with and we are focusing our attention on all kinds of other things. And, and I think part of that is likely escapism, this, this idea of we're unhappy, we're not settled, uh, we're looking to get filled and we're looking for meaning and purpose, we're escaping to another place for other things. And we get in this cycle and our culture seems to be addicted to technology. We, we are everywhere but the moment we're in. Pastor Oliver spoke last week on discovering the voice of God in the silence. We all benefit from unplugging once in a while, from refocusing, realigning our hearts, kind of thinking through what's the most important things for us. We all benefit from those things. And so if you pull out your phone today, there's no judgment, okay, it's okay, we're not going to shame you or anything like that, um, but hopefully you'll be able to connect with some of this idea of what we're, we're talking about. Jesus often went away to be quiet and pray on his own. And the scriptures actually contain many stories of people who spent time in solitude. And interesting enough is that, that, that sometimes it is by choice, but very often the times of solitude in Scripture are forced upon people by life's circumstance, by pressures and things that are often even outside their own control. Time spent in the wilderness. I love wilderness stories because they're so, they so often contain a story within a story. On the surface level, wilderness stories are about surviving the elements. They're, they're fighting off beasts and, and hiding and running from enemies and fighting off enemies and, and, and all that survival. But on a deeper level, the wilderness stories and scriptures, they're, they're stories of facing our inner struggles. The Jewish people use wilderness stories 
as a metaphor to describe seasons of testing, challenge, difficulty. Rabbi Erwin Kula, who is the director of the National Jewish Center for Learning and Leadership, is quoted saying this, the wilderness, far beyond its geographic or historic reality, enters the Jewish experience as a central metaphor for understanding who we are and what we must do. Now, of course, we know that's not unique to the Jewish people or just specifically to the Old Testament passages. And perhaps this is why we as followers of Jesus connect to wilderness stories on our own. Each one of us goes through desert experiences. The idea of the desert and the wilderness being a geographic place where it's uninhabited, it's rough, it's difficult, but also that metaphor element of a season of dry times or difficult times or, or struggling or feeling lost, financial pressures, fading health, career challenges. They're numerous, we know this. Our wilderness may be more spiritual in nature. Maybe we feel a fading connection to God. Maybe we feel more doubt than faith. Some of our desert experiences are going through the pain and disappointment that others have caused us. Parents navigating a wayward child, the pain of a broken relationship, feelings of loneliness and unmet expectations, the lack of connection to others. Sometimes our wilderness might be the struggles that we face in our mental and emotional health. Finding our way through depression and anxiety is often referred to feeling like I'm lost in the wilderness. Life is complicated and we all go through wilderness experiences. And as I was praying over this series, this off the grid series, looking at spiritual lessons and things we draw from people who are going through times of wilderness in their own stories, I reflected on a couple of things I wanna share for you as we get into uh, the message today. The first is the wilderness is not our home. You might not see an end in sight when you're in the midst of it, but be reminded that the desert is part of our journey and it's not the destination. It's a temporal place. It can be hard to think about anything else when you're in the middle of a wilderness season, but it's a place to pass through to our final home. It's not a place to build a home. I had this phrase, pitch a tent in the desert but don't pour a concrete foundation. Don't stay too long, don't, don't build your home. It's not where we're to be. It's something we pass through. God always leads us out of the desert. And the second thought is this, that God redeems our time in the wilderness. As challenging as it is to go through the desert, it's also a time of spiritual discovery, of personal growth, personal development, and that lasts a lifetime. This is true of wilderness stories in the Bible. It's true of church history. And the time spent in the wilderness leads to a deeper spiritual and personal formation that so often is the catalyst in God's bigger story in our life. And how many times can we look back and we see what God is leading us through and we see breakthroughs and we see blessings and we see forward momentum and we can look back and we can trace it back to the time in the desert, the victories and the lessons learned and the, the ground we gained while we were passing through those difficult times. My greatest challenges have taught me more about myself They've taught me more about my Heavenly Father than I ever would have known had I not gone through them. 
Romans 8.28 says, God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Jesus redeems the wilderness. And this is what I want to look at in the life of David in one of his wilderness experiences found in Psalm 63. A passage of scripture, that the text reads this. O God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. I love this poetic language that Paul, or sorry, Paul, that David is using. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. I will praise you as long as I live, lifting my hands to you in prayer. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. I will praise you with songs of joy. I lie awake thinking of you, meditating on you through the night. Because you are my helper, I sing for joy in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your strong right hand holds me securely. And so David is letting us know, he says, when I lay awake at night, I'm not overburdened with all the stresses and all the things because I'm going to you, God. You're the source. David wrote these words during his own wilderness experience. And before we look deeper into the meanings of these verses, I think it's really important for us to spend a little bit of time understanding the backstory to give context to understand what it is that David is writing and the declaration and the transformation that is taking place in his own heart. The psalm actually opens in the scripture, depending on which version you have. I, I use the NLT. The NLT has this little title and heading. And this is common in the book of Psalms where it gives a descriptor of the, the song or the poem that is written. And this is in the NLT. This is how it's worded. A psalm of David regarding a time when he was in the wilderness of Judah. David wrote these verses while hiding from his enemies. Now, ironically, David's enemies are not foreign invaders. The enemy that David is hiding from is actually his own son, Absalom, who is taking a run for the throne. He's ambitious and power hungry, and he believed his father was holding him back from his rightful entitlement to be king and to be king now. And as was common practice of the day, people would bring... Uh, their disagreements before the king and the king would make a judgment. And inevitably, somebody goes home happy and somebody goes home disgruntled. And Absalom begins to gather all of the people who have faced judgment from his father and landed on the negative side. All these disgruntled people and he gathers them all together and he gets a crowd and he begins to build a military force and he begins to get this big crowd of people who have an agenda and are uh, angry with David as king. And he's going to stage a coup against David. He's going to overthrow David. He's going to come after David. He wants the throne. And David's advisors see this happening. They see it beginning to unfold. And they warn David. And this is why David flees out into the wilderness. He gathers up his household and all those loyal to him. And he escapes into the caves. And he leaves his ten concubines behind to run the affairs of the palace while he's gone and while he's in hiding. And Absalom doesn't waste any time. 
And so he goes and he sets his tent. And in those days, the tent, they were known, they were branded. It was like everybody knew this is Absalom's tent. He goes and he sets it up right in front of the palace, right in the palace, uh, in, the, in the temple courts there, in the palace courts. And he proceeds to take the concubines into his tent and he sleeps with them one by one in the ultimate public declaration that he is now king, he has taken over, and he is taking everything that once was David's and he's making it his own. And this is the backstory to Psalm 63, in which David pours out his heart in this rich poetic language. Oh God, you're my God, I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. Scholars believe David describes his physical surroundings as a metaphor for his life. The dry and weary land, the parched ground that he's surrounded by are all of his problems and all of the circumstances and all of the loss and the pain and all the dysfunction that's going on around him. He says, my life is in ruins. It's dry and parched and weary. It's overrun. David's wilderness experience is one of facing his loss, disappointment, and his past failures. At this point, David has lost his throne and all that goes along with it. All of his past accomplishments, all of his vision to be king and all the things he wanted to accomplish, all of his future vision and goals, they're all, they're all gone. All of the riches and privileges of being a king are gone. David's wilderness experience is one of coming face to face with great loss. It's also his disappointment. He's gone from being the most protected person in society to the most hunted, from the most respected to the most despised of all people. And people close to him have betrayed him in hopes of furthering their own interests with the new regime. And David's wilderness experience is one of coming face to face with the heaviness of his disappointment. And I hadn't thought about this before, but one of the theologians I read over the past couple weeks as I was thinking through this message is uh, David's wilderness experience brings him face to face with his past shame and failures. Every day he wakes up in a cave, he's reminded of his own family's dysfunction that put him on the ground. His, he's reminded of his failures as a king, his failures as a husband, his failures as a father. He's reminded of the shortcomings of the way he's been living his life over the last number of years. You see, the roots of Absalom's rebellion go back to an earlier time, earlier family drama that David failed to handle appropriately. Absalom grew up with his sister uh, Tamar and his half-brother Amnon. And we're told that Tamar was a young woman of great beauty and Amnon lusted after her, eventually raping her and publicly shaming her. And David is angered by Amnon's actions, but he does nothing to restore Tamar's dignity or bring justice to the offense. He just doesn't act. He just goes on being king. It is Absalom who is so angered by his father's inaction and the abuse of his sister that he plots a plan for revenge and he kills Amnon two years later. 
So we don't know why David lets two years go by and he does nothing to address Amnon's egregious sin. Maybe David is too busy with the demands of being king. Maybe he's off to the G7, G8 summits. Maybe he's focusing on global warming policies or whatever it is he's doing as king. Maybe, maybe he's just too busy drinking wine at the table, feasting and partying. Maybe he's too busy uh, with his concubines and just partying up without any regard to how he's living. We don't know all of the course of these two years, but two years go by and he does nothing. And whatever the reasons might be, David fails to look after his own business and the important business that needed attention. And it catches up with him. And Absalom kills his brother for raping his own sister. And you think your family has problems. Think of David and this drama and all of this going on. And after the murder, Absalom goes into hiding for three years until he's reinstated back into his father's service, trying to make amends and restore things. And maybe David's thinking, maybe there's like, you know, we can, we can do the olive branch. Maybe we can try to get things repaired between us. We don't know much of the detail. And of course, the problem is Absalom's heart is still bitter and angry towards his father. Nothing has really changed. And now this is five years later. And if anything, over the last five years, Absalom's anger and bitterness, his resentment, his ambition against his father has, has grown. It's festered. It's gotten bigger. It's gotten stronger. And now he sets his eyes and he sets his sights on taking David's throne of killing David, killing his father, taking everything that once was his and making it his own. He's entitled, he can do better, he's worthy. All the list goes on and on. You see, David may be king and he may have everything, but when David goes to bed at night, his life is in shambles. He doesn't know who's going to turn against him. The riches and the glory and the power and everything haven't made his life better. They've made it more difficult. And all of these things and ignoring the important things and not focusing on his business and the important business that he needed to focus on has caught up with him. And he flees to the desert only to discover that his problems have come with him. And there's lots of time to think while he's in hiding. And theologians observe it is David's time in the wilderness which finally brings him face to face with his failures and his misguided living from the past number of years. Two years of the pandemic have revealed to us what people really think about God and government and society and what comes out when stress comes and what we're really made of and what we really believe and and. The desert always reveals our inner story. The desert always exposes what's on the inside. And this is part of why the desert is about the deeper work of God, the, the story within the story of our life. And so often, it's not all the other things, but it's what God wants to do on the inside. And for David, what if he had spent more time with Absalom and fostered a closer relationship 
What if he would have brought justice to the rape and abuse of his daughter? What if he had helped restore Tamar's dignity? What if he had dealt with Amnon earlier? What if he had done things differently? Maybe he wouldn't be in this mess that he is now. His own children are trying to kill him. They're killing one another. They're abusing one another. It, it's, it's a mess. He's lost everything. And he can't outrun his problems anymore. And David is forced to confront his past failures and the mess that they've caused. And ironically, for all the teaching that we do in the church on the subject of forgiveness and the importance of forgiving other people who have wronged us and letting go of that hurt and not carrying that and not letting the past hurts of others wound us so bad that they dictate our future. And we, we hit that a lot. It's an important theme. We need to be reminded of that, don't we? But it's ironic that for all of the focus we give on forgiveness, so often the hardest person to forgive is ourself. If there's one thing we actually, we just beat ourselves up, we hold bitterness, we replay that over and over and over and over again. This happens with parents over their kids when their kids aren't maybe living their life, that they, their best life that they expected. It happens over and over again and when marriages break down and could I have done things differently and what if I had done that differently and maybe we could have done this and why didn't we go for counseling back then and, and it's that idea, we just, it's so hard to forgive ourselves. We are trapped in the past. It's a snare that catches so many of us. We let our past shame and our failures get a hold of our heart and that dictates our future. I just want to remind you today that the love and forgiveness of Jesus is sufficient for each one of us, regardless of what we've done, regardless of our failures, regardless of the pain we've caused, we still can come to a loving Savior and we can say, Jesus, would you take this off? I don't want to carry this anymore. I made mistakes. I give it to you. And it's about letting go and giving it over and letting the forgiveness of Jesus wash over our heart. The thing with David is he doesn't let the mess of his past failures dictate his future. David's story is he continues to go on and the kingship comes back and everything is, it, David is this, he just has resolve. He's resilient. He keeps moving forward. He doesn't let the past failures change his future course. And our spiritual lesson from David's wilderness experience is a desert is an opportunity. A desert experience is an opportunity for inward renewal. It is a time to look in and say, God, do your work. Do the bigger work. Do the story within the story. We all have the story. Maybe things are difficult, things are hard, we're, we're struggling with this, we're doing that, we're trying to figure things out. What's the story within the story? What is it that God wants to do in your life at a deeper level? Is that work done? Has he crafted, fashioned, formed, shaped those things in your life? You see, David knows what it is to have plenty. He's tasted the good life of being king 
and having anything and everything he wants. David was living the skip the dishes lifestyle way before it was a thing. As a king, he just had everything and anything whenever he wanted. And now he's in a cold, dark cave. And David is as complete as he's ever been in years. He has none of the treasures and pleasures of being king, but he lacks for nothing. And he rediscovers the simple joys of faith in God while he's in the wilderness. Think of his words with all of that context and with all of those things for David sitting in the cave all alone, coming through all of this, and he says, oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. I will praise you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. And I will praise you with songs of joy. David rediscovers that nothing is more satisfying than God's presence in his life. And his time in the wilderness is one of spiritual and inward renewal. He lets go of his past failures and he realigns his heart to follow after God. David's done this before, he does it after. But he does show us resilience in saying, God, I come to you. I realign my life, my heart to you. And church, do not forget that Jesus is good. And Jesus loves you with a great love. And his forgiveness is real every day. And one of the more difficult things for us to do as people is actually learn to forgive ourselves. May you be reminded that when you go through the desert, when you go through the wilderness, when you go through the challenge, to say, Jesus, just forgive me. I come to you. Take away all this pain and all this dysfunction and all this mess. Restore in my heart. Realign your heart to Jesus. And if I could encourage you, it's to discover in each one of your lives what is the story within the story. Despite all of the circumstances and all the things going on in your life and all the challenges, whatever desert experience, whatever wilderness experience you're in, what is the story within the story that God is trying to do in your life? What does he want to write? What does he want to form? That's the goal. That's the stuff that stays with us for a very long time. That's the stuff that we know that we know that we know. You remember the three dudes that were in the furnace? It's almost like sitting in church today. It was so hot. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego won't bow down. 
They're going to be faithful. They're going to stay aligned to God. And the fourth man comes and sits down beside him in the furnace. When you have that experience, when you begin to figure out the story within the story, you have an experience with Jesus who comes and sits down with you in the fire. And you know that you know that you know that he's with you. And that stays with you for your life. It stays with you for a long time. You go back and you revisit those stories and those memories and those experiences. And so I have no answers, of course, for what and why we face what we face. But I do know that God is with you in the midst and he's trying to do something. He's trying to show you something. And that's the gold. And I wonder if as we close today, I'm going to pray into that, okay? I just invite you to bow your heads in this moment as I pray for the church. Just think of your own life. And I realize not everybody in this moment may even say, you know, maybe things are going great. There's a season of blessing and outpouring, and we celebrate that. But if you're in the dry time, if you're in the desert, if you're in the wilderness, if you're feeling lost, if you're... Could you just say, Jesus, what's the story within the story in my heart right now? On the surface, all these things, if they could just be fixed and put back together, I know everything would be good, but Jesus, what's, the, what's that story within me? What do you want to do? Jesus, I pray that you would help us as your people and your followers to not only learn to forgive others, but to forgive ourselves. And when we think of your beautiful forgiveness, Lord, it's to help us walk free. It's to take off the guilt and the shame, the failures, the shortcomings, the mistakes. Your forgiveness is so good. I pray that you'd help us to realign our hearts towards you, to put those things down, to be free, forgive ourselves. And Jesus, may each one of us be like David, who would say, Lord, You satisfy my greatest thirst. In this dry, parched, weary world, you satisfy better than the greatest feast. And I will lift up my hands. And I will worship and I will sing a new song. And I will declare your favor upon me. Jesus, would you fill our dry, weary, parched souls with your presence in your name.